Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today we have for you a brand new episode just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on September 1st of 2023 under the headline, Portland Woman Ran U.S. Spy Ring in World War II. Here we go. Sometime in 1943, during the Japanese occupation of the Philippines, a group of more than 40 officers of the Imperial Japanese Navy strolled into Club Tsubaki, an exclusive gentleman's club in the heart of downtown Manila. They were there for one last evening of fun while they were still in port. That very evening, they were scheduled to climb back into their submarines and set out for an extended cruise. The private party had been arranged by one of the sub's commanders who had struck up a friendship with the owner of Club Tsubaki, a gorgeous Italian-Filipina dancer named Dorothy Fuentes, a.k.a. Madame Tsubaki. For five hours, as Madame Tsubaki and her sultry staff danced and sang for the officers, the men had the time of their lives. The floor show was magnificent, the women were alluring, and the alcohol was flowing freely. And after a few more drinks, so were the details. The flotilla of subs was on its way to the Solomon Islands and would be leaving the next morning. Finally, happily exhausted and still pretty drunk, the group of officers staggered off to their commands at 6.30 a.m. and Madame Tsubaki's dancers finally got to go to bed. At about the same time, across the bay, a young man named Paccio was hurrying up into the hills, making for a rendezvous with a small band of American and Filipino army guerrillas. The guerrillas, under the command of a firm-faced American corporal named John Boone, had a radio set— and the race was now on to get the word out to General Douglas MacArthur in time to arrange an ambush for the flotilla of submarines as they motored out of the harbor. Pazio had a good start. He'd had the information he needed much earlier in the evening. It had been handed to him at the back door of the kitchen by Madame Tsubaki herself. If the officers had had any inkling who Madame Tsubaki really was, they would have been horrified. By 1943, every Japanese officer in Manila knew about the shadowy underground figure known only as High Pockets, a sort of Manila master spy running a secretive network of guerrillas and couriers throughout Manila, funneling supplies to the guerrillas and smuggling food to the starving prisoners of war in their internment camps. High Pockets, in turn, was the nom de guerre of Claire Phillips, a gorgeous brunette vaudeville girl from the faraway American town of Portland, Oregon. A dancer of sultry dances, a singer of torchy cabaret songs, and a stage actress of unusual ability. And in the Philippines, in the early years of the Second World War, she was playing the role of her life. Madame Tsubaki, Italian nightclub owner. High Pockets, by the way, was a coy reference to Claire's habit of hiding secret messages in her brassiere. Claire Phillips was born in Wisconsin, but moved with her family to Portland very early. Her maiden name was Snyder. As she grew up, she turned out to be something of a hellion. After her freshman year of high school at Franklin High, Claire ran away from home to join a circus. 
because that was something you did back then, I guess. It took her mother, a pious Christian scientist, four months to track her down. But she did, and dragged her back home, but then, apparently hoping to keep history from repeating itself, as it otherwise surely would, she's in her first year of high school for crying out loud, so she helped the girl get a job with Mayor George L. Baker's wholesome and respectable stock theater troupe, Baker's Players. This was in the early 1920s, when Baker's Players was still a going thing. Claire took to the stage like a true natural. Soon she was traveling with Baker's troupe. By the late 1930s, she was in Manila, singing torchy love songs in cabarets and having a great time. She had met and married a Filipino man named Manuel Fuentes. The match didn't take. They divorced soon after. But Claire got a daughter out of the deal, a little girl named Deanne. That's spelled D-I-A-N, as in Deanne the Beautiful, from At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I don't think she was named after a character in an Edgar Rice Burroughs book, but it's an interesting coincidence. She later anglicized it to Diane. Anyway, just before the war broke out, she met the man she always considered to be the true love of her life, Sergeant John Phil Phillips of the 31st Infantry Regiment, United States Army. When the Japanese invaded, Phil was taken prisoner, and he subsequently died of malaria and malnutrition in Japanese custody. After the invasion, from a hideout on a rocky outcropping, Claire witnessed part of the Bataan Death March, on which American and Filipino soldiers were forced to walk about 65 miles to their new prison camp. Along the way, soldiers who fell out of line for any reason, dropping from exhaustion, going for a drink of water from a nearby ditch, etc., were ruthlessly bayoneted and left writhing and dying in the dust as the column trudged on. Claire watched all this in mounting horror. And then... Corporal Boone, a friend of Phil's from his old unit, approached her. He and some of the uncaptured soldiers, he said, were taking to the hills, Robin Hood style. If she could arrange to stay in Manila and maybe keep help keep the guerrillas supplied. By this time, Claire knew Phil had died, so it was now personal. Yes, she told him, count me in. And for about two years, he did. Of course, it couldn't go on forever. In May of 1944, one of her messengers was caught slipping food and supplies to POWs at one of the notorious prison camps. Under torture, the messenger gave her up. And on May 23rd, the Japanese military police came to Club Tsubaki and introduced themselves to High Pockets and arrested her quite roughly. Claire was interrogated and tortured and waterboarded and burned with cigars, and she played her cards very carefully, spilling stale information, that is, naming people who she knew had already left the area or been arrested or killed, and acted as if she was betraying trusts in doing so. It also helped that the only thing that they knew about at the time was her smuggling of food and supplies to POWs and other prisoners. Had they known she was passing on military intelligence as well, it probably would have gone even worse. Tried in a military court, Claire was sentenced to be executed. This was subsequently commuted to a sentence of 12 years at hard labor. Less than a year later, the American forces liberated her prison. They got to her just in time. She had wasted away to under 85 pounds. Her healthy weight was about 140, and she actually had to be fed intravenously at first because her digestive system had shut down. After the war, Claire was hailed as a hero. Even before she was back in North America, her hometown newspaper was singing her praises, and soon afterwards, Reader's Digest picked up the story and spread it nationwide. She wrote a memoir of her war activities, Manila Espionage. It was published in 1947 by legendary Portland publishing house Binford & Mort. 
The following year, at Fort Lewis up in Washington State, General Mark Clark presented her with the Medal of Freedom, America's highest award for a civilian. The accolades kept coming. She appeared on an episode of NBC's This Is Your Life with the legendary Ralph Edwards. Afterwards, she was presented with a home in Beaverton and a new Packard automobile. She threw herself into the lecture circuit, giving speaking engagements and appearances around the country talking about her life and time as an American spy behind enemy lines. She even had a Hollywood movie made about her. Starring Anne Dvorak in 1951, it was called I Was an American Spy. But behind all the activity, all was not well with her. Always a restless spirit, she'd been deeply traumatized by the cruelty she'd witnessed and the torture she'd experienced. Post-traumatic stress disorder was not really yet a known thing, but oh yes, she did indeed have it. Nightwear, nightmares woke her up screaming in the early morning hours. She beat them back with a bottle, drinking enough alcohol to ensure deep enough sleep to not be disturbed by her inner demons. Soon she was a certifiable alcoholic as well as a workaholic, and predictably her health began to deteriorate. Then, nearly as quickly as she'd risen to fame, the world seemed to make a special effort to forget about her. Her mistake, the one that precipitated her fall from public grace, was an understandable one. She put in a claim for compensation from the government for the expenses she'd put up during the war and got a little carried away with her figures. But after all, how does one put a dollar value on a trauma like the one she had experienced? Most likely the way she set about it was to tally up all the revenue she received from Club Tsubaki, which she spent as quickly as she got it on relief supplies for the guerrillas and prisoners, and add in a healthy percentage for interest and incidentals. In any case, the figure she came up with, however she came up with it, was 146850 pre-Nixon shock dollars. In modern currency, that would be about $1.6 million dollars. And that was such an enormous figure that it caused many people who would otherwise probably have been favorable to her case to kind of turn away from her, dismissing her as an awkward gold digger. Naturally, her documentation was scant. Who was keeping careful records during the war? Nobody, that's who. Well, maybe the U.S. Army was, but Club Zubaki was not. Uh, so the federal employees and FBI agents processing her claim seeing claim after claim that was unsupported by documentary evidence, started to suspect that she was trying to take advantage of government largesse. Some of them were not shy about expressing that view. One FBI agent, in a note he left in her file, wrote, She's a prostitute, got a lot of publicity, and is a phony. She also had a falling out with some of her wartime colleagues in the Philippine resistance. At least one of them started spreading rumors that um, she had been a Japanese collaborator. As Madame Tsubaki, her job had been to vamp Japanese soldiers and officers, so naturally many Filipinos at the time hated her for consorting with the hated occupiers and accused her of being a Japanese collaborator. Not all of these rumors were extinguished by her arrest. Plenty of real collaborators got arrested and jailed by the Japanese during their occupation as well. In the end, the government took the position that she was entitled to nothing and the judge awarded her $1,349.21, which probably didn't go far beyond covering her attorney fees. And that was in 1957. Three years later, weakened and getting sickly, the 52-year-old war hero caught meningitis and died. Fame and adulation are fickle things to begin with, and they seem to be especially fickle for women. In any case, following that initial post-war burst of enthusiasm for her wartime service, Claire Phillips fell quickly into obscurity. 
Following her death, she seemed utterly forgotten about. Documentarian and author Sig Unander deserves a lot of the credit for bringing her story back to life. Unander has been working on a full biography of High Pockets for several years now, and when he finishes it, it will probably become the defining work on this fascinating vaudevillian war hero. Most recently, in 2017, the Oregon State Capitol Foundation unveiled the Claire Phillips Memorial on the northwest corner of the state capitol grounds in Salem at a ribbon-cutting ceremony with then-Governor Kate Brown. Claire Phillips, the governor remarked, follows in this Oregon tradition of women who truly fly on their own wings. And how? By the way, in case you're wondering, no one is 100% sure what happened with the flotilla of submarines that Claire sent away to its doom after the all-night party with its officers. But in her book, she writes that she heard back from one of them later, and he told her he was the only survivor. Key sources in this story included works by Sig Unander, Brian Libby, and Douglas Perry. Oh, and of course, Claire Phillips and Myron Goldsmith, her co-author. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I sure hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do and to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes come forth once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m., and so it won't be long before the next episode is on your device and ready for you to queue up and enjoy. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the weekend, too, with good stuff. Bye now.